This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Welcome back to another episode of Wednesday's Women, and today we're going to be talking about Alice Stokes Paul, Um, and I really, really enjoyed going back through my memory file of remembering who she was, because I learned about, she was the only suffragist I think I learned about in high school, and she was the main focus of the suffrage movement and how we spoke about it in high school, and so I just clearly remember what I heard about her from there and then I was able to build upon my knowledge about her. Really that's interesting that she's the only one you talked about because we didn't really talk about her in high school. I took like the equivalent of AP U.S. history but not for an AP credit just for an automatic college credit Mm -hmm. and so we did discuss her a little bit but we definitely talked about um, Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony as the face of the movement and not like, we just brushed over her as, like, they started it and she ran it, like, the last leg of the race. See, now ours was flipped. Like, they, they briefly, briefly was, like, these two people started the movement and then they focused on her. You watched the movie. Mm-hmm. We had, I remember, an essay question about Alice Paul um, from my high school. It was a, it was high school U.S. history because I did not take AP history because I was about it. As a nurse, I don't need it, so I was like, I'm not going to kill myself over this. Uh, But yeah, we focus primarily on Alice Paul. Hmm. That's interesting. So, Alice Stokes Paul was born January 11th, 1885, in New Jersey to a wealthy Quaker household. Part of the Quaker tradition, religion, I guess you would say, they are a religious group, is very much, you see everyone as an equal So a lot of the Quakers we've talked about were abolitionists and joined the suffrage movement because they saw women as equal. So her parents were very pro-gender equality, which was pretty typical for Quaker families at the time. Um, That's actually the reason why she was so interested in uh, Susan B. Anthony being her role model. Like she stated throughout her life that she's her role model for not only that reason, but also she saw her as a role model because she was also Quaker. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, Alice pretty much did spend her entire life working on the suffrage movement. Um, So early on, her early suffrage ideas were planted by her mother, who was a member of NASA, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and attended women's suffrage meetings. Um, Alice often attended those with her, even though she wasn't, like, as a child, she would attend with her mother. Um, TC, Alice's mother, may have also held meetings at their home or just, like, had members afterwards, so not really an official meeting, but, like, most of the group comes back to your house and hangs out for a little bit sort of deal. Um, it was at their house in Paulsdale that, um, Alice Paul noted years later that she was first introduced to the suffrage movement. So she was a little more comfortable with it than other suffragettes who sought it out later in their life. So just this idea of growing up around it and being very comfortable with it just from an early age. Um, In a Newsweek interview, 
Paul said she dedicated her entire life to women's equality. Um, when a Newsweek interviewer asked Paul why she dedicated the whole of her life to women's equality, she credited her farm upbringing by quoting an adage she learned from her mother. When you put your hand to the plow, you can't put it down until you get to the end of the road. Um, which if you're not familiar with farming or old farm adages, it's this idea that when you start something, you have to see it through, even if that's just to a milestone. So obviously once you pick up the plow, you don't have to plow the whole field, but you're not going to leave a plow in the middle of a row, just because that's not a fun place to pick up at. So that was her early life. Her education is very impressive, especially for a woman of her time. Um, so now, even, yeah, even for now. So she was a doctor, not a medical doctor, different doctor. <laughs> but that, that was very uncommon for women at that time to achieve such a high level of education. I apologize if you can hear a cat meowing in the background. My kitten is um, on bed rest, and he's not happy about it. <laughs> and a weed. <laughs> so Alice attended a Hicksite school in Morristown, New Jersey, and graduated first in her, her class in 1901. So Hicksite friends endorsed the concept of gender equality as a central tenet of their religion and a societal norm of the Quaker life. So like I said, a lot of Quaker families were very into this ideal. Um, and so they didn't see it as weird or no one really like made fun of her for it. She went on to Swarthmore College in 1901, which is a co-ed college that her grandfather actually helped co-found for biology. Um, her mother also attended this school, but could not finish her degree after she was married because married women were not allowed to attend. Um, and that's a big reason why, especially Alice was like, all of her children attended the school because she felt very sad, when, saddened whenever she didn't complete her education. So she instilled that moral in her children where you have to go to college. But Alice was the only one who actually completed all four years and graduated of her children. Fun fact. And I mean, I just think that's a terrible policy to have, and that seems very outdated, and it is, but just to give some context, my great-grandmother actually had to drop out of nursing school because she was pregnant, and they did not allow her to continue her studies. Um, I don't think that it is easy to be a mother and a college student. I am just a college student and sometimes find it to be a struggle, but I do think it should be an option to those who want to pursue it. I don't think your motherhood should eliminate you from eligibility. So oh, yeah, we have, like we have issues like that even at Clarion because I know a girl who I went to high school with, she has, um, she just had a baby at Clarion and she was told to drop out to like not go for schooling anymore by her advisor and she didn't agree and so she kept going she had her baby. It actually kind of lined up perfectly with quarantine, but now she's going to be returning to school, you know. It's such a, again, it's an old-time idea that women, I think we think that they only need to have one role, especially early on. Like, you see people going, returning to school after their kids are older, but the idea of having those 
two responsibilities seem, I don't know, undoable, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not, it's not gone. Like, there are still schools that you can be removed from if you fall pregnant, um, which I mean is absurd because if a man rears a child, he is not getting expelled. Exactly. So, um, I mean, in the case of my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather worked at a mill, so he wasn't really at risk of getting kicked out of anywhere. But had he been attending the same university to be a nurse, he wouldn't have been removed. Um, so I do think it's just problematic all around. <laughs> so at Swarthmore, Alice was taught by some of the leading female academics of the day, including mathematics professor Susan Cunningham, um, Cunningham was one of the first women to be admitted to the American Mathematics Association. So again, a lot of these um, American whatever associations, chemical societies, um, bar associations, they've been around for a long time, but women are really just seeing their entrances into these associations within the last 100 years. And part of that was because of the suffrage movement, because the suffrage movement fought not only for the right to vote, that's kind of what it's known for, kind of like the figurehead of the movement. It also fought for women's rights in higher education. She was, get ready for this, a member of the executive board of student government and was named Ivy Poetess and served as a commencement speaker. Caitlin and I are also executive board, mem executive board members of our student government. Caitlin's technically an advisor, but she used to be an executive board member. <laughs> So, um, and I believe you'll be a commencement speaker this year if commencement ever happens. Don't bring that up. It makes me sad. <laughs> I will if that is a thing, but I don't think about it because I'm just afraid. I'm just sad all the time. <laughs> Alice then attended the New York School of Philanthropy, um, which later became Columbia University. So again, an Ivy League school, um, very renowned. Um, there she received her Master of Arts degree in Sociology. Um, so that was a fairly common profession for women at the time to go into social work. Um, I think it was something like the top five professions for women were like nursing, teaching, um, domestic work, social work, not in this order. I just know these were in the top five. And then usually in a restaurant staff. Those were usually like their top five for this time. So it wasn't uncommon for a woman to pursue a social work degree. It was just uncommon for a woman to go for her doctorate in social work. Not uncommon, not as easy as it is now. And it's not easy now. She then went on to England to study social work specifically and later came back to the United States to earn her PhD from UPenn in 1910, which is where Tree, who was on two weeks ago? Yeah. Will be attending this fall, if not in person, in spirit. <laughs> he didn't die, he's just- <laughs> COVID just everybody sad. <laughs> Following the passage of the 19th Amendment, Paul earned three law degrees and traveled to South America and Europe from the, like, through the 20s and 50s. Um, she moved back to the United States permanently in 1941. 
Alice Paul died on July 9th, 1977 in Moorestown, New Jersey, just a few miles from her birthplace and family home of Paulsdale. Did she, um, do we know if she attended school for all these law degrees or were they honorary law degrees? Oh no, she did them, I think she did them like for reals because she got those degrees specifically so she could draft and help with the update in um the civil yes civil rights right and also she wanted to help people overseas because i think it said when she went through the 20s and 50s that's another reason why she got the law degrees was so that she could utilize them in helping women overseas that needed that support i knew she got i had known of one law degree so i didn't know if the other two were honorary or if which you can receive more than one. That's possible. I know she got one definitely for the reason of being able to draft the documents she drafted in the work overseas, but I'm not sure about if that applies to all of them or just one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure. It just takes a long time if you go for more than one. It takes like three years for one. But, so... We talked about her education and she took that brief gap between her master's and her doctorate to go to England. And this is where she really saw reforms in the suffrage movement. So at this time um, in the early 1900s, England was also fighting for women's suffrage. Not everyone in England clearly, but <laughs> several members of the communities in England were fighting for women's suffrage. So, Alice worked at the Woodbrook Settlement in Birmingham, England, where she studied social work. She first became involved with the British suffrage movement by selling a suffragist magazine on street corners. She says this experience opened her eyes to the abuse that women suffer, really in everything they do, but especially in the suffrage movement. Um, so, suffrage was very uncommon, both not uncommon, unliked, both here in the United States and in Britain. So people would yell at her, throw things at her, um, call her derogatory names. And there is discussion about whether we should refer to them as suffragettes or suffragists. So suffragette was started in England sort of as um, a demeaning term, like you're all women, we don't respect you. And that's why the et was tagged on. Um, but similar to other reclamations of words that were previously used in a demeaning way. Um, female suffragists or suffragettes in America sort of reclaimed the term and in Britain as well and would say, yes, we are suffragettes and we still demand our rights regardless of what you call us. So there is just of note, um, especially with Alice Paul, we will shift back and forth from suffragist to suffragette and that will just really depend on um, different quotes and different time periods of when they refer to themselves as what. So these experiences combined of people being rude or on street corners combined with the teachings of Professor Beatrice Webb convinced Paul that social work and charity could not bring about the needed social changes in society. This could only be accomplished through equal legal status for women and this is when she really started to focus on legal amendments, especially to the Constitution and not just the states themselves. Um, but clearly she was still in England at this time, so she wasn't working on that just quite yet. Um, while in Britain, she also met the Pankhurst women, who were the most radical feminists of England and were very notorious in the suffrage movement. 
Um, she, according to an interview, joined their movement and personally broke over 48 windows. Um, she was arrested and imprisoned on several occasions. The suffragettes, including Alice, while they were imprisoned, would protest their confinement with hunger strikes. Um, during this time, they were forcibly fed during, in a brutal fashion, so this would include um, feeding tubes or just holding their mouths open to pour the food down. Um, and that was seen as really a last act of defiance to not eat. And so this is sort of, up until this point in the U.S., the suffragette movement has been fairly calm. I don't want to say this is like radical, but this well, is... A, well, this is still in Britain. Yes. In America, though, things are still fairly calm. When mm -hmm. she returns, that will change because she will bring this back with her. Yeah. Um, so... Lucy Burns meets Alice Paul in a London police station after being arrested um, during a suffragette dem demonstration outside of the Parliament building. Um, the two women quickly not only became sort of friends and cohorts, but also gained the trust of prominent WSPU members and began organizing events in campaign offices. Um, so they really quickly rose through the ranks. When Emmeline Pankhurst tried to spread the movement into Scotland, she actually brought Paul and Burns along as her assistants. Um, and they were not with her from the very beginning, but she saw the most promise in them. And so that's why she claims to have taken them. So British suffrage was actually highly controversial in the US due to more um, abrasive actions the women took, such as throwing rocks at windows and the hunger strikes. Um, so the saying in Britain was deeds, not words, and they were looked down upon really by not just Americans, but everyone that like, you need to act right. But they had been fighting with words for so long. Um, Britain did get the right to vote two years before the USA in 1918. Um, so perhaps there is something to be said about deeds and not words. So that is her time in Britain. And then once her and Lucy Burns had felt that uh, their time was done and with what they could do in Britain, they returned to the US with a newfound ideal of wanting to change American society and get women rights here. So she returned home from England in 1910 and began her study in UPenn, like we said. There she joined the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which was organized and led by Carrie Chapman Catt. You can see a little bio about her if you go to our Instagram and Facebook page. Um, but she was an individual that Alice Paul frequently and publicly disagreed with. They had very different ideals of how a campaign should be run and who they should support as a campaign and the way they should conduct themselves. Uh, Paul was quickly appointed as head as the Congressional Committee in charge of working for a federal suffrage amendment, a secondary goal of this organization. Um, in 1912, two years later, she, Lucy Burns, and Crystal Eastman went to D.C. to hold an elaborate parade that coincided with the inauguration of Pre President Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was the presidential uh, candidate that NASA did support, so it was very crucial that they 
tried to not offend him or upstage him in any way. Alice Paul wanted to do exactly that. She wanted to upstage him. She wanted to show that women's suffrage is an issue that we've been dealing with forever. Why are we celebrating a new president when we still don't have rights? So they, they got uh, Carrie Chapman Cat to come and be in the parade, but it was with, wasn't without consequences, what I will say. So the parade began on March 3rd, 1913 with a beautiful lawyer, activist, and socialite, Inez Milliholland. She was very, very close to Alice Paul and very crucial in the suffrage movement. So she led the entire parade wearing Greek robes and uh, riding on a white horse. Just like you'll see a lot of political cartoons about her where she's just leading all of the women on this big political parade. Mm-hmm. But as magical as a moment that it was, the scene did quickly turn ugly because of the amount of male onlookers and anti-suffragettes that were attending the parade. Um, first, they were only attacked with insults and obscenities, but that quickly turned into a physical altercation where police ended up having to actually, you know, well, the police eventually did step in, but they mostly at first just stood and watched. Because so, they were just, sorry. sorry, I was just gonna say that they, they very much so were usually on the anti-suffragette grouping and aligned with them because typically at the time that's most men, most people that were police officers were men and men were very unsure mostly of what suffrage would mean. Yeah, and so just going off of that, one thing that is important to know when you're having a big movement like that, you request what's called a, um, oh my gosh, what is it called? It's a specific permit you get for action or something. Yes, and it's, you go through this whole thing, you say where you're going to be, they send officers there just so they know what's going on, and so officers were present to step in at any time, and they failed to do so, and so there was recollection from not only Paul, but many other suffragists there who remember police standing and watching, and they were sort of, the police weren't watching them, they were watching each other, waiting. When are we going to step in? So they knew eventually they would step in, but they also knew they weren't going to step in right away, Um, which is not how you want your police force to act (laughs) at all. Yeah, and eventually they did step in because it got really unrowdy, but, and also the it's in DC and the president's getting inaugurated. They really don't want to have all that bad press on their hands. Mm-hmm. However, that's the whole beauty of the parade. So the following day, Alice Paul um, looks in the newspaper, and front line is the parade. Not the inauguration, the parade, above the fold. And the reason why is because of all the unrest that it caused. So despite the fact that the parade itself seemed in the moment like it had failed, it had actually done the exact opposite and became a popular topic of discussion among politicians and the general public. And then... <laughs> On March 17th, in response to the parade, Paul and other suffragettes met with Wilson at the White House and expected to kind of press him about the idea of having an amendment put in place that would allow women to vote. But he said it was not yet time for the amendment to be in the Constitution, which he said those type of things for a variety of reasons. You could say it's because he didn't want to upset anybody else in his party. You could say it's because he didn't believe in that. Um, there are a lot of reasons, and that's why the decision of when he does decide to um, 
change his mind and persuade Congress to change and accept this amendment, there is a lot of ideas of why did he do that? Because there was a lot of reasons of wonder why he doesn't like it. So the reason he most commonly gives up until he changes his mind is like a really lame reason that everyone knows is fake. But if you look it up, it will just say he often listed more pressing matters. So I think at one point he lists tax reform. At one point he discusses um, international relations. So Woodrow Wilson is the president leading into World War One. So he's, you know, discussing that international relations are just hearing that's more of a pressing issue. Anyone who deals with politics will tell you that's a cop-out and that more than one issue can be handled at a time. Yeah. So it is just interesting to watch him immediately change his mind. And it's also interesting that he references tax reform repeatedly because at one point suffragettes were fighting tax reform that women shouldn't have to pay taxes because they don't vote for their own representatives. So why should they have to pay into the pot if they don't even get any opportunity for improvement in their lives that's supposed to come from that money? But after all of this had happened, Kat and Paul started to increasingly disagree among many topics. Um, NASA and Carrie Chapman Kat concentrated on a majority of its efforts upon state campaigns, and Paul wasn't about that. She wanted to focus all their energy and funding upon a national amendment. So NASA actually uh, confronted Paul and her group because they disapproved of the use of their funding that they were getting from, um, what's the word I mean, looking for? Like donations. Yeah, from fundraising and donations because they were using the majority of their income to try to push for that amendment. Instead, the NASA felt that they should be sending their income to the national division. And because of this issue, they threatened to do an investigation into their funds, which after this, it pretty much led, it was all kind of like a boiling point. Um, and in 1914, they formed the semi-autonomous group called the Congressional Union, which is the group that they accused of misusing funds. They split from the NASA and created the NWP National Women's Party. In 1916. I do think this is interesting in that this is what led to the split just because so this is typically seen as sort of the end of the first wave of feminism not this split just this time period so we're sort of wrapping things up so like I said Alice Paul is sort of seen as this last leg of the race. Susan B. Anthony is seen as the start of the race. So she is laying groundwork for this amendment. And her and Marietta Bones had a very similar fallout in which Marietta Bones left, started her own group. That didn't work. So she actually left the movement entirely. So I am glad that neither woman completely left the group of the movement of women's suffrage. I just think it's interesting how similar the back half is to the front half almost. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, with Kat and Paul, they want the same things. They're on the same side in a sense, but it's like, if you're willing to be on the same side, when are you going to stop pushing to be liked? Because that's kind of the issue at hand. Paul was like, I don't really care if we're liked or whatever. We need to push for what's right. And Kat was more so about, we need to stay politically approved. We need to make sure that we're getting, um, we're seen as professional 
and respectable and because Paul had had that experience in Britain she was like we don't need that to get things done we can take the shortcut mm-hmm. so after they split um they created what was called the silent sentinels which is also called the iron jawed angels which is um it occurred in January 10th, 1917. So their organization, the NWP, started positioning women outside the White House, picketing for Woodrow Wilson to endorse the amendment for suffrage. It was big news. Uh, Woodrow Wilson typically would leave the White House once daily with a big entourage, and they would go and go into meetings and things. And he would acknowledge these women. He would tip his hat, and he was seen to just say, oh, you know, they're just, they're allowed to pro- or picket. Picket the correct word? Because there's a difference. Yeah, picket. Um, that's within their constitutional rights, so there isn't really anything he can do, and he's like, oh, just let the women do what they want. They don't know. They held banners inscribed within, um, different phrases towards the president. Some were a lot lighter than others. I also think it's like Kaiser. What? We talk about the one that says Kaiser on it. Well, quality. Quality banner. Um, it does refer to him as... Kaiser, Kaiser, Wilson, um, during the peak of the war, I believe. Yes, it is. It is important to note that the phrases, so when they started, they were asking him questions. How long must women wait for freedom? When will you support your women, supporters, things of that nature. But as it evolved, they started using his quotes. They would put things he had said and just say, if you do not have a voice in your rep- if you do not have a voice in your government, you do not have a voice in your democracy. And they would use his quotes to say, "You're saying that these countries are less than because they're not providing these opportunities, but you yourself are denying us these things." And so I think that's really interesting. And so I do think there is this sort of obligation where you can't say they're being these awful people because it really is just your words. Yeah, absolutely. And they really, the reason why they were called the Silent Sentinels was that they didn't say anything. They held these banners. They said they stood there, rain, snow, shine, whatever, and they didn't say anything to anybody, typically. Um, During that year, more than 1,000 women from across the country joined this picket line outside the White House. And he initially thought it was funny, like we said, he just kind of tipped his hat and was like, whatever. But that quickly changed whenever the U.S. went into World War I on July 28, 1914. And not only did it change how he perceived it, but it also changed how the country and the people in that, in D.C. saw it. So it was considered very unpatriotic to pick at a wartime president. During the wartime, they felt that everyone should come together and support him no matter what because he is your president and you're at war and that's the only way to succeed in a war is to support the person who's leading you. But the women were like, yeah, but guess what? We've been fighting this war for decades and nobody has liked supported us. So why should we stop supporting ourselves when nobody's ever supported us through our war? So they, go ahead. I just also think this idea of like, you can't critique someone because the countries at war is like stupid yeah like i don't critique you because i think you're an awful person i critique you because i think you could do better if i didn't have any hope that you could do better i'd just be like this is what we have and we have to work with it but if i'm like we could improve in this aspect i'm gonna critique you on it yeah i completely regardless of a war or quarantine or whatever 
Yep, absolutely. So to try and silence the women, they were arrested on the grounds of obstructing traffic, which if you've ever seen pictures of them, they're not obstructing traffic. People could get through, first of all. Second of all, they weren't on the street. They were on the sidewalk. So even if you're saying they're obstructing traffic on the sidewalk, you're stupid, and that's a cop-out answer. And we're going to talk about this later on, but this idea of political prisoners was not okay in the United States. But that was that's why they had to pick something to find them for, because they couldn't just arrest them for, for politically disagreeing with them. So if you've never seen a picture, it was typically, so like the White House gates, on the left side, you had one to two women holding one to two signs, backs up against the gate. On the other side, you had a very similar looking one to two women, one to two signs. So you could easily walk past them. Absolutely. Easily. Yeah, no, this was just a way for them to try and weasel them into stopping. Um, but it ended up kind of backfiring on them. So they obstructed them on these grounds of obstructing traffic, which are ludicrous, and they gave them the choice to pay $10 each or go to prison. The women majority were like, nah, I didn't do anything wrong. Why would I pay a fine and admit to doing something I didn't do? Because that's, that's what it is by paying the fine. You're agreeing, ah, oh, I did this thing I shouldn't have done, and now I'm going to pay for it. No. So between June and November, 218 protesters from 26 different states were arrested with charges of obstructing sidewalk traffic. Of those arrested, 97, 97 of them spent time in either the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it, Occoquan, 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 I think that's Occoquan, Occoquan, thank you, workhouse in Virginia or in the District of Columbia Jail. And Occoquan was actually where Alice Paul served her time whenever she does end up getting arrested. And it was a fairly new prison, so yeah. they weren't as strictly regulated as some other prisons. Like, there weren't people in there constantly doing checks. Yes. Yeah, for future discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paul and her compatriots followed the English suffragette model and demanded to be treated like political prisoners in staged hunger strikes. They were like, you know, we just, re we just arrived here and they have unsanitary cells, it's cold, it's rat infested. They want to be keeping their normal clothes on because they feel that putting on the prisoner clothes is saying that they are there on terms of being doing something illegal when they weren't. They are being political prisoners, but the police were very brutal to them in the jail, the wardens and the, what we call them, officers. And the arrests continued and the conditions at the prisons continued to deteriorate. And for staging hunger strikes, Paul and several other suffragettes were forcibly fed in torturous methods. So Paul had already experienced this once before. She experienced it in Britain. There isn't a lot of data on what happened in the United States, but there is a lot of data of what it was like in Britain. And from what I can tell, they're very similar experiences. So in Britain, many women said that they could suffer from broken teeth, bleeding, vomiting, and choking on food as it is poured into the lungs. Because what works, and I'll put some pictures in here, when you, and this is Nurse Caitlin talking, hello. So whenever you typically put in an NG tube, which is a nasal gastric um, line, you typically want to always ensure that it is going into the stomach. That's why it's said in, if you read Alice Paul's uh, recount of what happened to her, as soon as they get it through your mouth or through your nose, they force you to put your neck down. And the reason why is that helps to close off 
um, your airway. So to try and ensure that it's going to go into the right pipe. And if you're thrashing because you don't want this to happen to you, which I'm sure a lot of the women did, they thrashed and didn't want this to be happening to you. And I'm sure the guards and the doctors and whomever was there doing this procedure were not very gentle with them. Uh, that's why some of the women, especially in Britain, accounted that they had aspiration pneumonia because some of that flu uh, food particles would enter into their lungs. So that's an issue. If they couldn't get it through the nose, because they did have this regulation, I know this was a thing in Britain, if their nose appeared to be uh, damaged and all. So if you have NG tubes constantly being removed and replaced and removed and replaced, it very much damages those delicate tissues on the inside of the nose. So they felt that they tried to offset it by going into the other nostril, or if they were both really bad, they would go through the mouth, and that's where you start to get the broken teeth, because what they would do is they would do um, same thing as the nose, but much more unpleasant, because they would just take a feeding tube through the mouth. So if you look at pictures from that time period and when they did these, especially political cartoons, which I'm sure are very more realistic to what was going on, they would put the tube in and then they would have a funnel at the top and then they would pour in whatever they were giving them. Whereas today it's, unless you're uh, incapacitated and you're not awake, I've never, it's always usually through an NG tube and it'll be in a bag and it's like at a specific type of uh, so much per hour specific speed because you don't want to overfeed someone, especially in these conditions. So whenever I was reading about this, I was like, you know, something that they are very much at risk for is refeeding syndrome. So when you have a patient who is um, malnourished because they are having some kind of a uh, eating disorder issue or they've been malnourished from mistreatment or whatever, you don't want to just start feeding them a lot of food all at once. They'll start getting refeeding syndrome is what it's called, where they will get sick because you're overstimulating the body all at once and you're providing them way too much nutrition and they're just really going to get sick. Um, you have to do it slowly. And that's why if you ever like watch a movie where people are like found in the desert, they're like, don't drink too much, don't eat too much, take it slow. And that's why, because they don't want them to get sick. So I'm sure the women got sick in here. And that's probably why too, a lot of the women, like I know Alice Paul wrote in her uh, interview about this, you would immediately start throwing up. It was not a pleasant experience. <laughs> And then if you think about it, if they start throwing up, the people are probably like, well, wait a while, wait a day, and do it again, because there's no way they're going to get any nutrition by just throwing it back up. And I also think just the sensation of a feeding tube. So you can't close your nose. Once it's in your nose, you're not closing it off. If you put a straw in your mouth, you can pinch your teeth closed. So they're often using something to hold their mouths open while they're feeding them. And then the sensation of having the tube pulled out of you. So typically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming typically if a patient's getting intubated through their mouth, they're fairly unconscious. Typically, if they're getting anything down the throat, they are either unconscious or if they're somewhat awake and they have to do it because they're in a medical emergency, numb the throat. They can try to do some numbing medications but I'm sure they weren't doing that for these women. Yeah, you're not just sitting there taking a crazy But if you've ever, this was a common experience for me as a child because I was a difficult child. If you've ever eaten a cheese stick too quickly and the cheese is still attached to the cheese stick, 
and it gags you a little bit because there's something in your throat, but also in your mouth. That is a sensation that I believe she said she was force fed twice a day. So you're feeling that sensation four times a day. Yeah. So it's just going to induce vomiting, just the sensation of tripping your gag reflex. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I know uh, if you're, if you have like bulimia or if you're somebody who happens for some reason to have an NG tube frequently, you can, you can make it so you have less of a gag reflex where it'll be difficult then like say because the reason you have a gag reflex is to prevent anything from entering your lungs mm -hmm. it's there to try to make you cough it up or if you have something lodged in your throat that's going to obstruct your airway those are the reasons for it well if you're constantly messing down there it's like any other sensation you're going to become it's going to become desensitized to it it's not going to work as well so that puts them at risk for infections um, and aspiration pneumonia, getting something lodged in there, not being able to get it out as much as somebody else. So lots of big issues with it. And I do have a quote here of how, what we're talking about. So she said, Paul accounted, I resorted to the hunger strike method twice. When the force, forcible feeding was ordered, I was taken from my bed, carried to another room and forcibly put into a chair, bound with sheets and sat upon bo bodily by a fat murderer whose duty it was to keep me still. Then the prison doctor, assisted by two women attendants, placed a rubber tube up my nostril and pumped fluids into me, into my stomach twice a day for a month from November 1st to December 1st this was done. And another thing, the reason, I can only imagine how sore their nose was because typically if you're going to have an NG tube in for like an extended period of time, they don't take it out every time you have a feeding. They put it in and they leave it in for a certain amount of time because that makes only enough sense. But obviously with these women, they would have just probably tried to take it out had they been put back in their cells with it. But I'm sure that was very, very, very unpleasant. That's just hard for me to picture. So I've always had really, I always get bloody noses very easily. Like if I sneeze too hard, my nose will bleed. So like, as I was researching her, and then as we discuss, discuss a movie later on, like, watching the scene in it, I was just, like, I, I would be bleeding. I would be bleeding so bad. It would, like, I couldn't imagine. I remember in high school when we watched that movie, we had to sign a form. Our parents had to sign a form about it saying, like, do you want your child to watch this? And then we were given the option, too, if you didn't want to see that part, you could leave the room. Which, I mean, I think that take, obviously, you're, like, 10th grade, so I guess, you know, you're still a child, so if you don't want to see it, that's fine, but also I think that really shows you, that's a big reason of showing what these women were willing to endure for this to pass. And that wasn't the only thing they endured. They endured lots of things. I know Lucy Burns accounted in her testimony to a reporter about how they did the Oh, there's a name for it. It's something brick night, I think, where they all had to put their arms above their head. Sail brick, uh, sail brick night. I'll put the name of it somewhere here. But anyhow, where they all had to go like this and hold their hands above their head overnight. So there was many different forms of torture and brutality that they had to face for something that they didn't do that was wrong, that wasn't wrong. Um, prison officials actually removed Paul to a sanitarium in hopes of getting her declared insane for not eating. Um, but that didn't work because they found that, like, she isn't insane. She's just willing to die for her cause. 
she's not suicidal. She's completely sane. Um, but because of all of the moving and things, she was able to get news of the prison conditions and hunger strikes to the public, and that was taken to the press. Some politicians and the public began demanding for this, these women's release. Sympathy for the women brought many to support the case for women's suffrage. Um, so because of all that, not only did women's suffrage get advanced, but then also these women got released because of it. They realized, hey, these are cruel and unusual ways of treating people. We should stop it. So they did. And I just want to point out, so much like the British saying was deeds, not words, this worked in Britain, and that's where Alice learned it. And they've been fighting for years and can't get people on board with the suffrage movement. And it took, yes, it took 200 people and their struggles are not lost upon me. But relative to everything else, this was a fairly quick turnaround for these people are awful. How dare they stand outside this house with a sign they should yeah. rot in prison to, you know what, let's give them what they want. Oh yeah, absolutely. And because of all of this public publicity, it actually generated the White House pickets and subsequent arrest. Wait, sorry. Because of the public publicity and everything that occurred because of their imprisonment, President Woodrow Wilson ended up giving his support to the suffrage amendment in January 1918, and the amendment was approved by Congress shortly thereafter. So their deeds did do things. So Alice Paul, um, saw this through, heard the National Women's Party and the Silent Centennials, Sentinels, I always put too many ends in there, <laughs> um, saw this through, they were still together in 1920, um, the movie we referenced, Iron Dot Angels, does have a scene with them all in their clubhouse with stars on all the states who are ratifying this so that they can get enough to um, ratify the amendment, and you often have um, that very famous picture of, I believe it's seven leading women from the party standing in like a triangle formation on the steps of their like headquarters um, that follows in 1920. Alice Paul did not feel her job was done. She felt that while their women now had the right to suffrage and could vote, they still weren't given equal rights. So there were still some things they were missing in the movement, and so she did take a short liaison, probably to um, rest up her nose and her throat, enjoy some time off, a little me time, if you will. And then in 1923, on the 75th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, Alice Paul announced that she would be working for a new constitutional amendment, one she authored and called the Lucrieta Mott Amendment? Is that how you say her first name, Lucrieta Mott? Okay, I just want to double I check. I think so. <laughs> We're not known for our pronunciation around these parts. <laughs> this amendment called for absolute equality, stating men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. So this was fairly common that um, the continental United States and then um, at this time, Alaska and Hawaii actually weren't states, and then obviously not all of the states were states yet. So it was anywhere that we had jurisdiction of had to follow this principle of men and women are equal. So in 1943, the Equal Rights Act was rewritten, which is what she referred to as 
the Lucreate Mott Amendment, was rewritten and dubbed the Alice Paul Amendment. The new amendment read, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So the ERA was written, but was not passed. Paul continued to lead the national- What? Still hasn't been passed. Oh yeah, correct. It's, it's still not really a thing. Paul continued to leave the lead the National Women's Party, and in 1938, she organized the World Party for Equal Rights for Women, known as the World Women's Party. She played a key role in seeing that the preamble to the United Nations Charter, which we mentioned the United Nations last week, Eleanor Roosevelt working on the Declaration of Human Rights um, a little ways after this, included references to sex equality, which is big in the United Nations. They do um, sort of rank countries based on, do you see your women as equal? Do you treat them as equal? Because some places do see them as equal, but they're like, well, they're equal to a man, but this is their job. Um, so during the debates over the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Paul and the National Women's Party helped lobby for the inclusion of sex discrimination as illegal conduct. So during the Civil Rights Act, um, discrimination on the basis of race, it was being argued it should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to deny someone just because of their race or ethnicity. And Paul joined the fight to say, you should also not be, allow, be allowed to deny someone based on their gender. Um, Paul's proposed amendment was introduced to Congress in 1923, but it would not be approved until March 1972. This was the Civil Rights Act, not the Equal Rights Act. Um, however, the, oh no, this was the Equal Rights Act, just kidding. It was approved in March 1972. The amendment failed to be ratified by the 38 states required under the Constitution. Um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which stopped people from discriminating on the basis of sex, race, national origin, or religion, had the word sex added at the last minute, and that is often attributed to Alice Paul. Um, saying that she lobbied very heavily for that, and then they did eventually give in. Alice Paul's leadership in all of these movements made it possible for women to be more equal to men and treated more equally, like we are today. And though we aren't always seen as equals, as demonstrated by women sometimes having to leave university when they become pregnant but not men, um, it's much better than it was during her time. So they're at her time, you know, women were given allowances by their husband and they didn't have control of their finances. I have my own bank account. That's something I run on my own, by myself. I manage it. I maintain it. And that's something I wouldn't be able to do had I been born in 1893. Um, she also changed how people looked at suffrage and devoted her life working towards equality, not just with suffrage, but even beyond, as seen with both the ERA and the Civil Rights Act. Um, so this year, let's pass the ERA in honor of the 100th anniversary of the suffrage movement. Please. Please. Okay, so now I want to just talk about her legacy. So we keep talking about Iron Jot Angels. 
which is the movie we both have watched. I told Taylor to watch it. I watched it in high school the first time. Love the movie. Great actors. Lots of good actors. I feel that they fairly correctly portray all the cast, all that I know of. Not too sure about Patrick Dempsey's character and how realistic that was or if that was included. Because I couldn't find anything really about her marital situation. I saw some stuff about some women. Not sure if they were insinuating or they were just talking about her close friends, but I, I'm not gonna lie. I wanted to see, like, what's the tea behind Patrick Dempsey's character. He plays Ben Wiseman in Iron Jawed Angel, so I did go looking for Ben Wiseman and Alice Paul. Um, I looked up Ben Wiseman in the Washington Post. I didn't find anything that, like, indicates he was involved with her or, like, was really close to the movement. Or even existed. Yeah, or, like, was a real person. Or was he just put in there to show that try to like make us think oh but she wasn't gay <laughs> you know like you. You, know, you can't have a movie about women and not have there be some kind of love interest because i did see some reference to her and lucy burns being very close all their life and sort of staying together and working together um but there is a scene in iron jawed angels where lucy sort of bemoans that she isn't married, she's 30 years old, she doesn't have a family. Ben Wiseman has a son, and for the first part of the movie is a scene as Alice is sort of, well, not her love interest. Alice is his love interest, and he just keeps getting shot down. But I don't, I don't think he was a real person. I looked for him. I, I think it's just 2004. This was put out in 2004, still before women were like, ah, yes, I want to be independent, but I can also get married. We're still at the point where it's like, I feel like in 2020, we're more of a, no? I feel like they, I feel like they were gay baiting people in 2004. Oh, that's not what I meant. I just meant that, um... I just meant that, like, I think at that time they were still trying to make it seem like that's what women's, in, uh, not inspirations, aspirations. Oh, okay, I got you, I got you. That's more, I agree with you there. I do think that was happening in 2004, but I meant, like, I just think that they were still so focused on that's what women want. Because if you think of yeah. any early 2000s movie with women that are mostly women-centered, that's kind of what you're looking at, unfortunately. Clueless. I see what you're saying now. Yeah, but I think that's a big part of it. But overall, I do really appreciate the movie, and I think it does shed a lot of light in a very easy-to-understand way of what happened with the amendment and what happened with Alice Paul and then what they had to go through in prison, especially. They do a pretty good job showing how graphically it is not a pleasant thing to go through. Yeah. Well, that is a very good um, way to that they ensured her legacy, really, for... Uh, pop culture mm -hmm. and uh what would you rate the movie I would rate it like on out of 10 I'd rate it like a solid seven I was gonna say between a six and an eight yeah depending on like am I going for historical accuracy I'd probably give it like a six because I do think there was a large portion of it that was sort of dramatized to keep it interesting because it was advertised as a docudrama so it wasn't just yeah. a documentary 
on like an entertainment aspect, I'm giving it an eight. Like I enjoyed it. I mean, there were scenes that I didn't enjoy. And there is, if you watch it, there's a bathtub scene. And prior to the bathtub scene, she says she's a Quaker, so she doesn't dance. But then there's the bathtub scene. And I do have a slight problem just with that like logical fallacy, I guess. But overall, I give it an eight out of 10. Like I was impressed by it. I have to let you know two people. So in high school, when we watched this movie, my teacher skipped over that big like bathtub scene. And I was like, what are we skipping over? I'm confused. I'm no longer confused. And before you go to defend the teacher, there's absolutely no nudity. It's literally just her face and the implication of like, she's in the bathtub. Her hand falls. It's implying, it's not a far stretch. It's not a far stretch, but, like, there's no nudity. When I was in the 10th grade, we watched the Romeo and Juliet version with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is literally just an LSD trip. So, you could have... So did I. We also watched the, um... Did you ever watch the Romeo and Juliet, the old one from the 70s, with the guy that looks like Zac Efron? No. If you didn't, I'll send you the video because it's on YouTube. But her boobs are literally out, and we totes watched it. But in the eighth grade, we wanted to watch, I think, it was, what was it, Back to the Barnyard? Is that the one with the cow? Yeah. We wanted to watch that, and they're like, you can't. It's PG-13. And I'm like, I'm confused. I am confusion. Yeah. Literally, Romeo and Juliet get married just so they can have sex. And that's okay. But this is like, yeah, okay totes different suffrage man iron drawn angels is also on youtube if you can sit through 10 different ads spaced very close together you can watch it for free on youtube or on hbo go max or on hulu or on hulu you have to have the hbo subscription to watch it on hulu i don't pay for that i bum off my fiance's parents fun fact (laughs) or you can find a friend to steal their hulu and watch iron angels yeah, critically acclaimed no, by Caitlin and Taylor. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you though. I would give it like a solid six for historical accuracy, and I'd give it like a seven for my enjoyment level. Um, Af- also for her legacy, Paul was uh, placed into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1979. So obviously, this is after she died, and into the New Jersey Fa- Hall of Fame in 2010. Then at UPenn, her doctoral alma mater, Tree's soon to be alma mater once he gets done and finished there, which seems weird because he just finished at Clarion. Uh, they placed the Alice Paul Center for Research on Gender, Sexuality, and Women, which I would like to go to and or study from or take a class at because that sounds fun. Road trip. If, if 2021 spring break ever happens, that's where we're going. And then the U.S. Treasury Department announced in 2016 that an image of Alice Paul Willapill in the back of the newly designed $10 bill, um, along with Lucrieta Mott, Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, Katie Stanton, and the, ni- and the 1913 Women's Suffrage Procession, and Paul initiated, which she initiated and organized. So designs for the new $5, $10, and $20 bill will be revealed in 2020. Maybe. I'm going to put a big maybe in there because pandemic, and I have doubts in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. But again, I have concerns. They make stamps that you can, like, stamp their faces onto dollar bills now. I know. I've seen them on TikTok. I won't. I would do it. I would stamp 
I started seeing ones like that on TikTok for uh, Harriet Tubman. I've seen Harriet Tubman and Susan B. Anthony. I haven't seen it for all the women, but I've also seen a lot of TikToks of people making stamps. So I really think someone should go into like the business of just making like re-stamp the old racists off our currency. I'm into it. I'll put $5 towards it. I'll put $10 towards it. I'm into it. And technically, it's still usable. Still valid currency. It's still technically illegal, but I mean, so are press penny machines, and I have eight books full of press pennies, so. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. You're crazy. Hang on. (laughs) Oh my god, show and tell. Where's this one from? This one's from Kentucky when we went to the Ark Museum. This one's from Niagara Falls. And you just roll pennies and smash them. So wait, are they different types of designs on each penny? Yeah. So like, what's an easy one to get out? This one's easy to get out. This one I actually smashed on the turnpike coming home. (laughs) Brief detour from Alice Paul. It just says Cleveland Browns. Oh, I love it. Yeah. This one is from the Akron Zoo. This one is from Pittsburgh. This one is from New York Times Square. This one is different zoos I've been to in New York when I go with Model United Nations. And this one is a couple local places all put together, including Living Treasures, which is an animal park, Keystone Safari, Pimatuming Lake, among others. 50 cents to smash a penny. Well, 51, because you have to bring your own penny. Garbage. (laughs) But it's also illegal, and it says, like, straight up on it that the 50 cents you pay is your fine for smashing a penny. I love that a lot, and I, (laughs) I like that a lot. You've impressed me today, friend. There's only seven. I only have seven books. God, you're such a liar. How dare you? disappointed in my guesstimation skills <laughs> yeah so i guess with that note of us kind of like skipping off alice paul we'll get back to her and do our discussion questions so for the first one would you have picketed even though the country was at war why or why not so i'm gonna say given that i'm the same person i am now because i think if i had been born in that time i might be a little different than i am now but i also think i'm just a very stubborn person naturally but given how I am now, I absolutely would have. You get no excuses for being a garbage human. No excuses. Yeah, I think if I wouldn't have picketed, I would have done something for the movement. Like, I, like if I didn't have the ability to be there or yeah. whatever, I would have at least, like, given, to the don- given a donation or worked at the house or whatever. Yeah, you can't stand there and say these countries are inferior because they don't give their people rights but then say not all of our people have rights. Yep, absolutely. So next one, and there's some quotes that go with this. So how can one balance Alice Paul's perceived militancy with her title as a peacemaker? So here are two quotes of hers and a quote describing her. So the thing I think that was the most useful I ever did was having a part 
in getting the vote for all women because that was a big vote or that was a big transformation for the country to have one half of the country enfranchised. Alice Paul. Quote about Alice Paul. At the core of Paul's convictions was the belief that women should be in charge of their own lives rather than regulated for the government as a specialized group. Um, and finally, her protests on the picket lines and in prison stemmed from her guiding principle that women should be self-governed. Renee Miller, both of those quotes were from Renee Miller. So do we believe, how do we balance that? First of all, Alice Paul was a social libertarian. You cannot change my mind. <laughs> Just had to put that out there. Second yeah. of all, think she was militant. I think, here's what I think. For what, if you want to, if you want to have the opinion that she was militant, I balance that for the fact that she was doing it for peace. Sometimes things gotta get, like, she's like, deeds not words. And it's like, she only did what she did so that way things could become peaceful, in a sense. Things aren't peaceful. But I mean, it often, in great times of inequality or when a government is not listening to its people, it often does take a significant amount of violence, really. You figure there's political coups, there's assassinations, there's overthrowings. Like, there's a lot of violent things that you can do to be like, I disagree with you. And all she did was stand there and be like, you suck. And in Britain, she did in Britain throw rocks. I okay. won't deny that. But like, but like, I've seen kids throw rocks through windows and we're not force feeding them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Speaking of coups, did you know America had a coup at one point? Is this going to be a John F. Kennedy conspiracy? No, like it's a real coup. It's a coup. I'll send you a video. John, Mul or not John Mulaney, John Oliver, he, <laughs> I watched a video today where he talks about the, for real, it was the first and only coup that happened, and it was for, um, to get, to keep people as slaves before the Civil War. It's, I forget what all it's about, but it's a for real coup. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'll tag it in the video here, or in the <laughs> podcast. But anyhow, I just wanted to bring that up. I just think it's fun. No, I was just, I, I can't, John F. Kennedy's assassination was not a coup. It, it wasn't. There are people who believe it was. It wasn't. It, it doesn't meet the qualifications to be a coup. Like, even if the government had assassinated him, that's not a coup. Mm -hmm. So, he, it, it wasn't a coup. <laughs> that's my frustration. But okay, I'll look it up. Yeah. And then for the final question. A political prisoner is someone who is incarcerated not for criminal activity, but because his or her political beliefs or activities. The concept was developed in Europe in the 1800s to protect opponents of despotic reg regimes in Europe. Political prisoners, being different from common criminals, were supposed to be housed in better conditions than those who were in jail for other reasons. The Wilson administration carefully considered giving the suffragettes political prisoner status, but ultimately decided to, that to do so would cause a revolution in American law. Why can't American law tolerate the concept of political prisoners? It's unconstitutional. Exactly right. It's unconstitutional. It says in our constitution you can't imprison somebody for their political beliefs. You have to do it based on 
a um, some breaking of the law. And that's exactly why they quoted them as obstructing traffic because nothing else would have stuck. In the movie we watch, which I don't know how realistic this is, but I'm sure some kind of conversation like this happened. Them just being like, what could we charge them with? which is stupid anyhow for them to have to be like, what do we charge them with? If you can't yeah, tell me what, yeah, where you have to have a little bit of a, like a brainstorming session with your pals about what are we gonna charge the group of women with and get them off our asses? That goes to show you you're in the wrong. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, basically the reason America doesn't have political prisoners is when America was started, we were coming from England um, and while the concept was named in the 1800s, it kind of had existed before that. So we were like, oh, we know what political prisoners are. We aren't going to allow that here. Um, so we were like, you can't be imprisoned for your religious beliefs and you can't be imprisoned for saying that you think the color purple is stupid. And like, there are certain reasons that you can't be put in prison. And so we really can't have political prisoners. Um, I would argue that other countries shouldn't have political prisoners either. Um, just the nature of them, if you have to admit like this person did nothing wrong, they're just, just annoying me. Um, I feel like you need to self-reflect. You need to meditate for a little bit um, and just really think about <laughs> what has led to this point in your life. Um, and this isn't the only time that we've like kind of had garbage rollings. Um, so draft dodging, we wouldn't have political prisoners for. Um, the Red Scare was kind of a big thing where you would charge them for something else because you couldn't really say, oh, they believe in communism, so we have to yeah. put them in jail. And that's but the thing. We definitely have had political prisoners. We just oh, didn't yeah. treat them correctly. That's exactly what happened here with the suffragettes. They were political prisoners in all senses of the word. They were just treated as shit. And um, another thing that I kind of am interested in, just that they didn't use, is sometimes they'll get you for incitement of violence, which is really like, sometimes you are, like sometimes people are inciting violence and like, people that, Walmart, people that go to Walmart without masks on and go, that is inciting violence. Yeah, so some people are genuinely, if I say to Caitlin, let's go to the bell tower at midnight and burn it down, that's inciting violence. If I say, um, I disagree with what Caitlin wore to student senate, I don't think that should be allowed with our dress code, that's not inciting violence. I'm not, you know, I'm not encouraging anyone to act out. Um, obviously, Caitlin might be upset by that. She might feel like I'm being critical of her or hard on her but and she might get violent because of that but what I said was not inciting violence and so there is a difference that is sometimes ignored or stretched. No absolutely and I just I liked that question because I wanted to point that out because that is a conversation that swell uh not swarms rotates around the conversation of Alice Paul is that idea of political prisoners and the fact that these women didn't do a damn thing wrong and and I think a reason why they didn't use inciting violence is because they were silent like I think if they had said anything that would have been a big part of it but I'm they sure. weren't 
Also important to note that these women were often abused while they stood there and nothing was done to the men who abused them. As yep. it was the women. Just, just, just want to throw that out there. What a reflection to our society today. Did I say that a lot? I didn't say that a lot. Okay, Taylor, who are we talking about next week? So before I talk about next week, I just want to mention something that the CU Engage Coalition has going on. Woo, fancy. We have two more suffragettes to cover this summer, and then we are going to have a little recap at the end of August of all the suffragette organizations we've covered and the role they played in getting the 19th Amendment passed. Um, so if you've been counting, we had, I believe, less than 20 suffragettes discussed um, I actually think we had 10 suffragettes discussed. It was something like nine or 10. Um, so we just felt that really wasn't enough discussion of the suffragettes. And obviously as the podcast continues, we can revisit them. But an initiative we've started is every day for the month of August until August 26th, we are going to post a short snapshot story of a different suffragette. And so we covered... Carrie Chapman Cat, I believe today we are cover covering Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, and then Tuesday, I think, is Ida B. Wells, but I'll have to look. So, but we are covering a different one every day. And then, so I encourage you to check it out. Every so often, we'll put up on our story, what suffragette do you want to hear about? So you can let us know who you'd like to see us cover. As for on the podcast, next week we will actually be deferring a little bit from suffragettes and discussing Stella Goslin Cowan. So Stella Goslin Cowan was the first female enumerator for the census. 2020 is a census year and the census is very important to voting rights because it determines how large your district is, how your district is represented, so how your lines are drawn, um, and being able to participate What's up? Funding. Helps with funding. <laughs> funding. Um, public transportation, all sorts of things depend on the census counts. And so it was very important to the suffrage movement. Um, additionally, women weren't always counted in the census. And so to not only see women be counted, but then to see the first female enumerator um, is quite impressive. So I did just want to mention her during a census year. And I can't guarantee how long the podcast will go on, but I'm certainly not going to bet on us doing this for 10 years to catch another census year. So um, next week, we will cover Stella Goslin Cowan. And it isn't too late to fill out your census. Starting August 11th, they're actually going to start knocking on doors. Um, Cowan will come out August 12th, so I encourage you to go online, fill out your census. It can be done entirely online for the first time in 2020. Um, if not, you can call it in. Like I said, there will be people knocking on doors and such. So there are plenty of ways to fill it out, so I encourage you to fill out your census. I also encourage you to register to vote and utilize this great right that so many women fought and were tortured for you to have. Absolutely. All right, thank you everyone for watching and we'll see you next week. I have to put down my thing. This has been Wednesday's Women sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition.
The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening and make sure that you go out and register to vote.